Greetings and welcome to The Pure Report. I'm your host, Rob Ludeman, and it is time to bring the orange with one of my favorite people to talk to. And I'm not just saying that because you're here, Sean, but Mr. Sean Rosemarin returning to the pod for a third time. Welcome back. Thank you. Third time. Does that give me like Tom Hanks status or, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I think, I think somebody else that I had on, we joked that there's like the three timers club jacket. I think Rickson brought that up initially. <laughs> he was, Mr. Evergreen came on for the third time. And so he wanted a jacket. So I'll, I'll get cracking on a budget request to get some of those made up. I just need your size. You're probably what, like a 48 long, something like that. Yeah. A Canadian large. Canadian large. Ah, yes, that's right. I'll check the exchange rate before I, before I get that made up. How are you? What, what is going on? We are, we are cranking through the calendar here, here almost to the holiday period, which feels pretty good. Well, I am here in the uh, enterprise corporate offices of my house in awesome. uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, it is December, which means rain. Uh, and uh, what can I tell you? I mean, it's been one heck of a year. It really has. I, you know, we talked predictions the last time that I had you on, which was, uh, which was kind of fun and not necessarily predictions, but more observations about things that were going on. So if you want to see what has happened, because as we were joking before this pod, that a lot of the things that we talked about back in the summer have already come to fruition, check that one out. But we're going to do that again now because it is prediction period. Typically, you want to get your predictions out uh, before the calendar year starts. And we're going to go a little bit more technological and kind of, you know, evolve into the cloud space. But before we go there, I want to chat with you about a few things. First, any new bear stories? Last time you had a really good bear story because, you, you know, you're in the great Northwest there. Mm -hmm. uh, any updated bears? Well, so here's the good news. So it's December and it's cold enough that the bears have gone into hibernation. Perfect. Uh, which I learned from my uh, young children because they, they do read about these things or they ask Alexa, one of the two. Um, bears apparently while they're hibernating, they're still sort of, they do get up for an hour or two every day. I, I guess oh. I was fooled as a child into believing they were full on asleep for months at a time. Uh, but because of the hibernation schedule, there aren't as many bears around. Uh, that being said, I, I did run into a few since our last episode. And what I can tell you is, uh, you know, from, from live experience, black bears are, uh, you know, quite, uh, don't cause the same amount of friction, I would say, with humans. They, they do tend to keep to themselves. They're pretty hmm. uh, scared of humans in general. Uh, brown's a little less so. Uh, what I really don't want to run into is a grizzly. Uh, grizzlies, course. apparently, uh, it, it, it just typically doesn't end very well for, for you. Well, and they get up for that one to two hours a day now in the winter period, most likely just to sit on their Peloton for about 45 minutes and get their quick workout in and then <laughs> head back to head back to hibernation, right? You know, you, you know what, you're probably right, Rob, their, their Apple watches are probably buzzing them saying it's time yeah. to uh, it's time to stand up and uh, they want to make sure they close their activity rings because otherwise they won't hit their monthly challenge. That's right. You know how they market those products? They're not wearables, they're bearables. That's what, that's what they are. Oh, J, you know, J.D. Wallace is going to kill me for that one because he says that I just do too many dad jokes. And that was one right off the cuff for you, J.D. Bearables, not wearables. Take that. <laughs> hey, on the subject of Peloton, I'm really interested in something that you launched internally in the company. And, and it's a good idea for, for others to consider as long as we're kind of in the pandemic. But you pushed out an SE wellness initiative, set up a, a Slack channel, sent out some notes and just had people share kind of what they're doing as we're all kind of stuck in the home corporate office. How'd that come about and how's it going so far? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, looking at the most recent survey that went out to some of our teams around how they're feeling 
uh, during these times, communication has been so important. One of the things that came back was, you know, folks, the good news is we've gotten into the habit of working from home. Yeah. And I think in many cases, we've adapted to working from home. The bad news is uh, we're all a heck of a lot more sedentary. And obviously that's affecting our physical wellness, but we're also on video 12 to 14 hours a day. Some of us even more. And that's pretty mentally exhausting. Uh, it, it, you know, I never would have thought that being on the screen 14 hours a day, it, the way you feel at the end of the day is so different than the way you feel when you've walked around and you're physically tired, but mentally you still got a lot more to give. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, we felt as though coming up with some real innovative ideas on how to improve your physical and mental wellness uh, was something that teams could really take advantage of. And, you know, working at Pure Storage, we have some amazing benefits uh, in terms of some of the services we give our employees access to um, that just give them some new ways to think about how could you start to think about meditation? How could you start to think about mindfulness? How could you start to adopt some new physical fitness routines? And so we've run a good, healthy competition internally. It's all for charity. All the money goes to charity, but really trying to encourage folks to look outside their comfort zone and try to start try some new things in their home office regimen to help them along the way. Super cool. And I, I benefited from it personally. I made some new connections in the hydro community because I'm not a biker. I'm now a rower. And, uh, and that was all just because you got that set up. So uh, thank you for that. It extended my network. And that's really what it's all about these days is uh, the size and the strength of your network. Um, one other topic I want to jump on before we do predictions that I always love to hear about is that uh, you you and the crew also sponsor and encourage hackathons. And there's just such a, a wealth of really talented and smart individuals out there in your organization where they just come up with these 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 amazing things that we actually then go and and actually can productize and deliver to customers. What was the result of the the recent one? And you can also, while you're at it, remind people of what we've come up with over the uh, the course of the fiscal year here. Yeah, you know, having the privilege of of looking after our systems engineering organization here, roughly 600 or so systems engineers, I'm always surprised at how hands on this team wants to be. Right? I mean, a lot of times. You think, you know, you're in sales, going to see customers, you really spend all your time reading these spec sheets and solution architecture reviews. Reality is we have a, a technical organization here who really loves to get their hands into the technology, loves yeah. to play with the, not just the hardware, the software, the platform, the way in which it interacts. And so, you know, in many cases, one of the things we spun up this year was we said, hey, we're going to have an SE only hackathon. So for all of you engineer wannabes, if you've got a great idea and it's not on the current roadmap, we're going to take a bunch of those ideas. We're going to see which ones we really think will move the needle the most for the company. And we're going to have a bit of a contest around a single idea. And once the idea is selected, teams can opt in to say, I'm actually going to build something. And in many cases over the last three quarters, uh, we've essentially delivered three really interesting solutions to market that I think present some great opportunities for the company and the market at large. Uh, you know, the first thing we tackled was really how do we get all of our products deployed 100% remotely. Mm -hmm. Some work had been done by our engineering teams, but there was a, there's always that last mile, right? Which yeah. says now that we're in the height of the pandemic, how do we get the last mile of touch out of that, uh, out of that system? I uh, haven't found a way to plug something into the wall remotely quite yet. Uh, but outside of that, you know, we solved that whole zero touch provisioning process. Yeah. And the second hackathon that came in was really about, you know, how do we use the innovative model of Pure One, our, our system that gathers all the telemetry on over 20,000 arrays around the world? 
how do we extend that to start to look inside the container architecture? Mm -hmm. How could we start to see how pure storage was being used in a container sense and being able to deliver some visualization around um, the container workloads? And so that rolled out in the second quarter. Um, and uh, that's, that's now accessible and available via our website. And then the third thing was uh, just last quarter, right? We have, we have some dark sites. We have customers who can't leverage phone home capabilities because they sit behind a, a firewall where no data can leave. Um, and, but in those cases, there was a lot of customers who still wanted to be able to share data, but they wanted that data to be redacted. They mm. wanted that data coming back to us so that we could proactively support them to satisfy certain criteria to make sure that it was completely redacted upon leaving their institution. So a lot of really interesting creative thoughts as to how to get that data flow working back and forth. And you know, the, the partnership between the systems engineering organization who represents our customers and the engineering organization, uh, obviously working on stability and hardening of our core products, it's, it's a perfect way to just almost light that innovation match um, and, and just have it burn a little stronger. Yeah, I mean, hashtag teamwork, right? As well, when you when you get to that, is is a great thing, and and uh, you know, letting the the SEs participate in the engineering process and be an extension, it just it must be a really exciting thing. It's something different, right? It's it's not, as you said, just the 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 day to day of of doing the sales calls and and running demos, but actually, like you said, being able to uh, spark that creative fire. Well, um, super super awesome. Always love to hear about that and. I'm sure more are to come. Hey, should we get into predictions? Are you ready to let's roll? Let's do it. Yeah, we're in December. Uh, let's just make sure we don't date ourselves here. December 17th, 2020. 17th, and we'll probably look to roll this out maybe right as the new year hits, um, if not before. Um, we'll see how many people want to listen over the next couple of weeks when things are a little bit quieter. But uh, let us row. And this was something you also kind of prepared and ran recently for, uh, for AWS reInvent. So uh, a, a good reusage, but also allowing you to go into a little more depth as uh, as this medium allows so let's go number one um this is a fun one to kick off hybrid and multi-cloud architectures and flexibility will prevail in most situations and i, I capitalize most because i think that's the that's the one i'll do a follow-up question on you know where might they not prevail but what's your thinking behind that look i mean technology is so polarizing everybody loves to replace a new technology with something old that just makes our life simpler. And I think when public cloud first emerged, I think we all kind of hoped, hey, maybe this will just mean that everything just runs in this data center in the cloud and we never have to worry about infrastructure platform systems again. The analogy I would give you is um, that, that you know, we, we, we went through this peak of inflated expectations. We went through this peak of everything could move to cloud. And what's actually happened is it's on-prem plus the cloud. Yeah. By the way, the future is on-prem plus the cloud plus the edge, or what I think Gartner is now calling the distributed cloud. Um, and that's a nice way to, uh, um, to, to refer to it. But here's the reality. Why did it fall short? Well, it fell short for three reasons. First of all, we do have the laws of physics. And Rob, if you have a way to actually bend the laws of physics, then please let me know what those are. But at this point, we have not found a way to send a bit any faster than the speed of light. Yep. And, you know, given that we have that limitation, it brings latency. You know, it's not really about how fast can I drive on the highway. Uh, it's about how many lanes do I have on the highway. And so at the end of the day, when you think about that latency constraint, 
I'm still going to have, even in the advent of 5G, I'm still going to have a certain degree of latency that means I need to move the technology as close to the consumer as possible. Think about a hospital, think about a factory, uh, think about a rail car. There is a certain amount of distance, maximum amount of distance under which I will not be able to deliver against the requirements of the business. And just to give you an extreme example, if I'm doing an operation on a patient via some sort of remote machinery where I need to communicate between the machinery and the system that's actually running it, even though that surgeon might be miles and miles away in the future, I'm still going to require technologies very close to that machine in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And so doing so, the laws of physics don't change. Latency doesn't change. More importantly, if you think about governance and compliance, data gravity continues to be a concern. It started with GDPR. It moved off to the California compliance. I think we'll continue to see more and more regulation that forces data gravity to say there are only certain places where we will allow encrypted or non-encrypted data of certain sensitivity to live. And the third one I tie off with is just pure economics. The cloud grants tremendous agility and tremendous flexibility. But when your application is mature and you can actually predict how it will be utilized and what sort of peaks and valleys you're gonna have, it's been proven time and time again that you can more cost-effectively run it on your own infrastructure or through a managed service provider. And so, you know, it's always that cost of agility. You're paying a price for it. When you need it, it's well worth it. And nobody delivers agility better than the cloud. But once it's predictable, the economics change. And I think a lot of, you know, our most sophisticated clients are, are, are really finding that out. Uh, really well articulated. That was a good one to start with. It's funny, you, you mentioned the whole physics challenge because I come from processor land and that was always something that we got, you know, challenged with when we we're talking roadmaps. When are you guys going to create a 10 gigahertz processor? You know, it's like, well, physics doesn't change, right? The electron only moves so fast. And by the way, you know, that was about the time that some of the brilliant engineers out there doing microprocessor stuff went to your multi-lanes thing, right? It was like, well, we just, you know, we just find ways for multiple threads to operate and then we get more stuff done. We don't, we don't need to move it at a 10 gigahertz clock speed. So quite a, quite a good it, it was funny. It was funny though, Rob, do you remember the big latency light bulb for us? When we were transferring data, latency wasn't a big concern. Yeah. Because as humans, like if the email comes in now or comes in in 10 seconds, doesn't really matter. When we moved to voice with quality of service, we found our first latency hurdle. It was like, oh, yeah. oh it's weird if there's this odd pause that lasts longer than a couple milliseconds mm -hmm. as a conversation. Then we went to video. And this year we felt it more than ever. Yeah. And the reality was latency on video held us back for a decade because it's just awkward to have a video call where the latency's off. Yeah, or if you're doing streaming, right? I mean, you know, think about if you, you were using streaming services even five years ago and you wanted to rewind something, you know, oh, I missed that and I'm gonna try to go back 10 seconds and the thing spins and then you get to the part you want and then it goes 1%, 2%, 3% and then really fast up to 98% and then you see, yeah, it's like it, it, latency, right? I mean, but we, did, we had to notice it in the commercial sense before we really recognize that that matters. Anyway, yeah. we're waxing we're waxing poetically here, but it it does help hammer hammer home some of those points. All right, well we'll pop to number two, and this is really around hybrid application architectures becoming mainstream, and in your mind enabling enterprises really more flexibility 
in, in what they build, where they deploy. And, and to me, this sounds a lot like what we're starting to talk about more and more, which is kind of the, the, the any cloud, the any cloud application, the any workflow kind of mentality, a lot of which is, is kind of brought on by what we do with data services. Yeah, you know, it's, I think I can remember a seminar I attended back in early 2000. That I think we were talking about probably SOAP at the time. Service-oriented architecture. Oh gosh, concept. yeah, yeah. That back then was build once and deploy many. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, I mean, it's interesting because you can always find these breadcrumbs in technology of a really good idea that was a little bit ahead of its time. We didn't have the technology to support it. But the reality is, if we look at where we are now, it's exactly what we want. I mean, we want to build the best application and the best code base, and we want to build it to satisfy all the requirements of the business. But just like when we look about when we look at the whole transcoding process for media, we, we, we take one cut of film and we transcode it to run on multiple platforms. Really, that's what we are achieving or aiming to achieve in the application development set is to write it once and deploy it anywhere. Because the reality is today, it might make sense for me to deploy in the cloud. But at some point, I may want to actually bring that application back on premises. Or for one reason or another, I may build a different business relationship with a different cloud. Or I may want that application to actually fail over between clouds. I'm sure you saw last week, you know, when, um, when one of the AWS regions went down, uh, ultimately it caught a lot of customers kind of not entirely ready. Uh, no. My vacuum was very confused for a couple of hours and I wouldn't call that an essential service, but it was clear there was a problem. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately we want to build and deploy anywhere. So our initial go at that was PaaS and I think PaaS, showed us a lot of where and how we could do that. But ultimately beyond the platform, containers will take us there. Containers will allow us to build microservices, be able to place those microservices either all in one cloud or across disparate clouds. But how do we really start to think about a set of services, right? Or call it a mesh of services that can run or be run across any of those infrastructures, whether they be cloud or physical. And I think that truly is where we're headed and it presents an amazing opportunity, but we got to figure out where those stick points are, where the application breaks when you change the underlying platform it sits on and be very critical of those lock-ins and make sure that you are aware that you're doing that either for a very good business reason or um, rethink the architecture. Yeah, it's funny. I, again, you went back to, you know, we keep doing these historicals because I think there's always those parallels. I remember when every other article I was reading 15 years ago was about SOA, right? Service, service oriented architecture and the promises of what that hold. I don't see it much anymore, but it, that was again, kind of the kind of the idea behind that and, and where we are and where we've gone to. We just needed the technology to get us there. And as you say, containers, containers is kind of the, the thing that's solving that. Well, and I just I, I want to double click on that for just a moment. So I think when enterprises think about containers, they think about this natural evolution. We went from a mainframe to open systems. We split our applications up a little bit when we moved to Unix. Then we went to client server. We split our applications up a lot onto x86 boxes, right? Mm -hmm. We had this, this kind of like propagation of x86. Then we moved to VMs. So we went from an order of a hundred boxes to an order of thousands or tens of thousands of VMs. We're now moving to an order of magnitude of millions or yeah. billions of containers for an application. The real exciting part about this is that it presents a uh, order of agility that has never been seen before. But here's the problem. When you break an application up into millions or billions of containers, let's just say thousands for the sake of this discussion, 
you start to create very interesting patterns of how the bits within those applications actually uh, move. You mm -hmm. start to create bottlenecks and network issues you didn't have before. And so, you know, this really is a new architectural paradigm for us. And Kubernetes solves some of it, right? Mm -hmm. Kubernetes is great at, at, at orchestrating the creation, deletion, movement of all of these containers. But ultimately, it doesn't solve for how all of the bits and how all the data services across all these containers are going to communicate. And so that, that really is where we're at as we're seeing organizations embrace hybrid cloud, embrace containers. They're really starting to say, okay, how is this going to affect the way in which I've architected my apps and the underpinning services that support these applications? Um, obviously, you know, that's a very exciting space for us. We invest in Portworks uh, specifically for that reason. And if folks want to know more about that, they can listen to John Owings' uh, podcast, which I think was just a couple of weeks ago for you. Very recent, actually, just earlier this week, um, December 14th, something like that. We'll give a date so people can go back and find it. But uh, thanks for the plug on that one. Um, cool. Really interesting um, prediction number two. Let's do three here. Shifting a little bit, and this is a, this is a, this is actually a really great. I forget what I was reading recently that was talking about this, but um, the notion that that data integration, right, is is going to be automated more and more increasingly by artificial intelligence, by machine learning, and then what becomes the role for humans, right? As, you know, there's a there's a threat to jobs to employment how do they how do they add value oh i know why this is relevant because uh i pushed i pushed out a blog around this just about three or four weeks ago that's why this one rings a bell for me yeah we talked extensively this is a great one yeah it's it's i mean here's once again i'll use an analogy to prove the point so the beauty is over the last month well month over the last few years some of us have gotten access to look at our own blood tests you go to mm -hmm. a clinic, take a blood test, they give you a little URL, you can go check out, you register, you log in, you can see your blood test results. Awesome. Here's the problem. None of us are doctors. <laughs> so when the blood test result says, hey, Rob, you're yellow here or you're red here, you instantly panic. Yeah. It's a medical test and somebody's right. telling you, you have a problem in your blood. But many times when you go and talk to your doctor about it, your doctor says, oh, don't worry about that. That doesn't matter because this other marker is fine. Or that doesn't matter because historically you've always had this uh, issue or it doesn't matter because it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Uh, it is out of the norm, but without these other things, it really doesn't, uh, doesn't mean anything. And so, you know, when you think about, I'm just giving you one branch of this, when you think about how in which uh, systems are getting smarter, the good news is as humans, we're not really good at looking at billions of pixels and trying to find what's different. Machines are very good at that. Yeah. But as humans, we understand context. We have a much broader library of context, which is why we have these masters and PhDs who spend all this time learning about the context and history of all this data to interpret it, to be able to communicate it, to be able to come back and tell us, you don't have to worry about that, or you do. And so I'm a big believer that it is man plus machine, not man or machine. When you think about radiology, when you think about CT scans, blood tests, you start to even think about what's going to happen in the world of smart cars. You start to think about how traffic patterns are going to happen. We want machines to do a lot of that work because of their speed and their accuracy, but we don't necessarily want them to interpret, correlate, or communicate it. That's one aspect. The other aspect I would say is we have to become a little bit more collaborative as a society when it comes to data integration. If we have solved for how to connect different data sources, we need to become a lot more open to sharing those models, especially in arms of research um, and science. 
so that ultimately we can learn or bridge off of others' innovations and start to bring the end conclusions to market faster. I do think this concept of a marketplace for data models, and it really gets us to prediction four, but as we learn more and more about how machines learn and how they attract libraries, being able to build off those libraries, offer them up as marketplaces, no different than we buy iPhone apps today, being able to sell data models in a marketplace will become a booming business. Uh, not to deviate too far, but I, I was listening the other week to uh, one of the podcasts that I'm a, I'm a fan of, and they did talk about how the entire archive um, of Enron back in the days when Enron was all in the news, that entire email archive actually became public domain and it became a massive learning library for what is Siri and Alexa today. The yeah. natural language processing library came actually from millions and millions of, e of emails uh, that were made into public. That's just an example of when we take that library and we learn from it and we open up and expose that particular area, we get tremendous learnings. Uh, might be biased learnings in a lot of respect, depending on the library we get to, but I do think that is a massive quantum opportunity for us. Yeah, but there's probably some value to having the libraries be larger, right? To, to extend, I, I think back to a you know, back when we used to travel and we will travel again, I, I went to Australia to do something around AIML and, and there was a medical researcher there, right? And he had been granted access to a certain country's entire medical set of records, you know, millions and millions of patient records. And he was going to, you know, he was trying to figure out ways to run studies to determine early detection of, of you know, certain uh, long-term diseases. But, you know, I kind of thought about that and went, okay, that's just one country's but how much more could you learn if you had the entire data set? And again, it's vast, it's large, it's mind boggling to think about all that, but if you had the, the entire set, right, of, of records, and then what could you go learn? And to your point, we, we can't do that analysis as humans. We, we don't have that capability, but the machines can go out and find those patterns, but you need to have somebody that can interpret to do the inferences to actually create and derive value. Yeah. I, absolutely. I, I do think humans are still some of the best, uh, uh, you know, some of the best and most valuable minds that we have for correlating disparate data sources. But more importantly, telling someone, so what? What does it mean? Does it mean anything? Should right. you be concerned and how concerned? And so if we think that the world of self-help means that we'll go in and robots will take our blood and we'll go interpret what it means to us, I think we're many, many, many decades away from that becoming a reality. And I still think humans want to talk to humans, want to be comforted by humans, want to be counseled by humans. Uh, and that's a big, big business for all of us moving forward. Well, let's talk about that because number four, you already alluded to, and we're already kind of down that path, but that these digital marketplaces will take this data science and effectively be able to monetize the data sets or even monetize the, the algorithms uh, that are there. You've described that a little bit already, anything further to, to add to that one? Because that one is really fascinating. Yeah, I, just, I, I feel as though we have to be careful that we don't build all of these expensive, high-performance, highly sophisticated systems to solve a problem that's already been solved or to come up with a data set that's already been realized. And so understanding in, in the public uh, in the com public company space, you're not going to sell your crown jewels of all of your customer data. But when you think about the lines of research, when you think about the lines of education, when you think about the lines of healthcare, um, we want to really kind of pool our spend, solve a problem, and then share the out output of that. And then focus the additional dollars on the next phase. 
and the next era and the next advancement. Mm -hmm. I feel like we could really fall short here if we just spend um, tons and tons of money to solve the same problem over and over and over again. Even if it's slightly more accurate, there is a point of diminishing returns where we've gotten enough, we're good enough at that, that it doesn't actually pay to invest in it anymore. Yeah. If you think about you know, what Google's done um, in terms of really being able to uh, beat you know, Gary Kasparov at chess, what mm -hmm. IBM did with enabled, being able to win at Jeopardy, you don't have to invest a whole lot more to prove that you can solve that problem. The question now is the next degree of money should be to take that problem to the next level. And so I do think there's a marketplace. Remember, there's a business model here that says you could go solve that on your own or you can buy this model that is already built and just plug in the last 10%, the last 15%. Uh, and I do think you'll see marketplaces evolve around algorithms and data, data integration. Yeah, it's a classic buyer build problem, right? I mean, that's, that's one that's uh, not, too, uh, not too new. Um, Cool. Here, at number five, I'm really fascinated in because just arbitrage in general is a is a really interesting thing. And as you look at, you know, cloud services evolving much more to a utility, we've we've known that it's been going in that direction. But your your belief that cloud arbitrage is going to drive new opportunities, but also new efficiencies, uh, and and you kind of added in when we chatted, you know, spot and reserve are just the beginning, right? And to me, again, this is like, this goes back to our old utility model of, you know, of electricity. We don't think about where it comes from. And frankly, there are ways that we can, you know, move it around and, and acquire it and use it more cheaply than some areas than in others. So, so what is that? How does that apply to cloud, cloud arbitrage as you view it? Yeah, I love the electricity example you just gave because I still feel we really haven't harnessed arbitrage in electricity. I mean, it's great that it costs me less to do my laundry at three in the morning, mm -hmm. but who's really going to wake up at three in the morning to go put their clothes into the washer and then move it to the dryer? We, we, we kind of harnessed the fact that there was an opportunity there, but we didn't build the technology around it mm -hmm. that would allow us to say, hey, if you get everything ready, I'll, I'll do it all for you uh, at a future time. Uh, so there's definitely opportunities there. When you think about cloud though, here's what we know. We're gonna put more and more devices at the edge. We're gonna go from the internet of people, which is what we're living now with social media, to the internet of machines. All machines will be talking to other machines that potentially be liking and following other machines data. And all of this will need to be processed. It'll either have to be processed at the edge where it will be really real time, processed at the core, kind of a consolidation of hospitals or railways or highways or whatever it happens to be. and then consolidated at the, um, at the cloud, which will be really historical annual data. When you think about the cost to consolidate, analyze, rationalize all of that data, you're, as it becomes more and more longer term, less and less critical that I have the answer now, I'm okay to wait a day, two days, a week, even a month for some of that data to compile. The key thing is going to be there's so much of it that I want to pay the smallest amount in resource. And so how do I actually build a marketplace that looks at the total amount of Slack capacity across the cloud? And because it literally expires instantly if it's not used, how do I sell off that Slack capacity? Mm -hmm. And how do I actually build a marketplace that says I'm now going to line up a bunch of workloads that the moment that the price drops below a certain amount in reverse auction, my workload actually starts to run and grabs that Slack capacity and does what it needs to do. And to my earlier point about hybrid IT, I don't actually care where it runs because ultimately I'm just going out for the lowest price per pound. 
So you start to build a marketplace that really says, just like today, I can have deep glacier, glacier storage for pennies and micro pennies on the dollar. How do I actually get full um, compute and cloud capability at such a low price, but it's unpredictable when I'm going to be able to run it or even where I'm going to run it? Yeah, it truly shifts it to what you care about most is the outcome based on your priority and the cost, right? It's, it's, that, it's that classic kind of trade-off, but ultimately you don't, you know, there's going to be times when it's a high priority and others where it's not, and there will be this capacity. I think it's going to require a lot of cooperation too, right? I mean, the, the, the birth of the clouds and the cloud buildup and the hyperscalers have largely been, you know, on their own technology stacks and, you know, they don't mix, but you've started to see some of the mixing, right? I kind of scratched my head with, with curiosity when the, you know, when the Oracle, Oracle with Microsoft agreement, you know, sort of came out and it's like, oh, we're starting to see that, you know, that crossing the, the, the Ghostbusters crossing the streams thing, you know, going on there to again, where ultimately someday we'll look back and just go, oh, it's a utility. It's, it's you know, it, it's just as a service in general, and yeah, it may live in somebody's cloud and they'll monetize it, but kind of we don't care, right? Well, it's and the thing is, we're already seeing what good looks like today. Yeah, I mean, it started with SETI back when I was in university, where oh, that's the, right. the that's search right. for extraterrestrial intelligence, where we broke down these little packages and we ran it on the PC. And it, I mean, it drove IT nuts because it consumed a ton of bandwidth at that time. But the reality is it then went back. And I don't know if we ever found any aliens or not, but it was a pretty cool technology back then. Most recently, we've seen it, we've seen it in genomics with uh, Folding at Home. Uh, you know, a great partner of ours here at, at Pure Storage, and we're a great partner of theirs as well. And in that they've taken, you know, the breakdown of protein folding into, you know, millions of pieces, worker bytes, and, and send those out to run only on Slack capacity on my notebook, not impacting my ability to do my job in any way. And then once that worker uh, package is completed, it actually just sends the result back up to a central console where it all gets put back together again. And, you know, when you think about that concept now extending to a high degree of workloads in any world where I actually am going out and only using Slack capacity on the cloud, there's a huge opportunity. And what it does is it'll consumerize workloads that otherwise no one would ever be able to pay to analyze. And so I don't know if it'll be done by the clouds actually cooperating or whether or not a marketplace will sit above the cloud, essentially almost white labeling Slack capacity. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see that come to market. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be an interesting one. And probably sooner rather than later, somebody will get really smart on it. Um, awesome. Well, number six is kind of a no-brainer. So I'm, I'm curious what, what's new and different, but really the notion that compliance and security are even under greater scrutiny, right? And you've talked a little bit about, you know, data, data locality and uh, things like that in one of, the, one of the prior ones that you covered. But... What gets new and different beyond data sovereignty, beyond the compliance things um, that are here? Maybe it relates to what we were just talking about in number five, frankly. You, know, you have this marketplace for Slack capacity. There is potentially security concerns with how and where things go and land. Yeah, I, I think what really changes here, Rob, is the consumer's perception of the mm -hmm. companies they deal with and how they treat their data. Okay. You know, there's no doubt today that I think a lot of us have adopted the philosophy that if the product is free, you are the product. Uh, and we give our data away willfully every day. And I would even say that from an attitude standpoint, 
we're okay with the fact that we're giving up a little bit of our privacy in return for convenience, right? I mean, Waze being a prime example, Waze knows a lot about me because I use it all the time, but you know what? For me, being on time is very important. And I love the fact that I never worry about whether or not I'm going to get somewhere on time. And I sell, I give my data to Waze in return for that. But you know what? I think as consumers, we're getting smarter. We're getting a lot more picky about who we're willing to share our data with. Mm. And we're thinking about how they're using it and whether or not they're using it in ethical ways and whether or not they're using it in a way that I'm comfortable with them marketing it. And what I'm seeing more and more is if you break a consumer's trust once, there is so much choice in the marketplace today for a vast amount of services that you can lose your customer for life, right? We've seen some of the antitrust cases that have been going on in the US right now. I think a lot of people are thinking about, huh, Do I want to give that much data to that company? Do I want to really think about how those companies are using my data? Do I want to be a lot more selective about who I'm willing to give my data to? Um, Because we have more choice. And I think that's what's fundamentally changed. It's it's, yes, there's penalties for breaches. Yes, there's penalties for uh, not following compliance. And those are more government regulatory. But I think it hits the top line. It's not just about the cost and the expense. It's about customers and consumers making a real choice to deal with companies who are being responsible in the way that they gather and use their data. Uh, And I think that continues to be a massive discussion point, not just next year, but over the next decade. Yeah, and as everything's become more digitized and online or e-commerce or digital commerce, whatever you wanna say, you do have more choices. It was probably a bit more limiting 10 or 15 years ago where there were, you know, many fewer online vendors or ways to share your data. And now, like you said, we just, we give up our data willingly in exchange for some type of valuable service. I mean, I always think back to, um, you know, Scott McNeely who ran Sun, who I think had a famous quote of, you know, you no longer have any privacy, get over it, right? And that's, and that's really, you know, where we are. But I think now it's evolved to, yeah, you don't have any privacy, get over it, but you do have choice, right? That's a choice, right? Of who you want to share your data with. Your data has, is currency, right? It has value, right? Companies want it. They use it. They share it. They sell it. They monetize it. But if you don't give it to them or you take it away, then that's where you're, you're weaponizing your power over your data. A hundred percent. The other thing I would say, Rob, and we, we would be remiss if we didn't mention this, is security is no longer just about the data getting stolen. Yeah. It's about the data getting to a point where it can't be used or can't get accessed or you can't deliver the service. And I mean, ransomware is the most prime example of that. I mean, look, I I live up here in Vancouver. uh, It's it's been publicly uh, said that our transit system got shut down for a couple of days, unable to take credit cards based on ransomware. You know, as a consumer, that's a problem for me. Right. I mean, I'm going to make some fundamental decisions about how I get through my city if I'm not sure whether or not I'm actually going to be able to take transit that day. Mm -hmm. And so the traditional conundrum of making sure your data doesn't get breached was one thing. But now we're seeing a more sophisticated form of attack where, hey, good news, none of the data got exposed. Bad news, they encrypted it. We can't use it. The service is shut down. And so I really think we're starting to see some evolutions here in the maturity and complexity of how the data pipeline is getting interrupted that is, is forcing CIOs and CTOs to, to just think a little more about, you know, what is the overall uh, value chain of all this data look like and how do we protect it at every level? Yeah, and I think that's really it <clears throat> at every level, including the backups as we know. 
Um, all right, number seven, a couple left here. Uh, and I love this one, right? I mean, this is something that we talk about all the time uh, within Pure and outside of Pure, but that basically all IT is going to shift to an as-a-service consumption model. And let's face it, that's, that's really what people want. They want, um, you know, they want the outcomes, but, you know, facilities, infrastructure, applications, full platforms. And, you know, for me, I think this is, this is something that we just see as, you know, industries mature, is is that that eventually things just sort of evolve into that as a service model although it's been more of a a recent type of thing but I'll, I'll go back and use my electricity example right i mean electricity when it first started was not necessarily an as a service part right every company every building had its own electrical generating plant right every building on the block had to have something so it really wasn't necessarily as a service and then you know they started building it on mass and offering it out as a utility so you know, as things mature, that seems to be where we go. But the the aspect of IT is interesting, right? Because there's always been this sort of on-prem deployment. And I need to acquire it and run it. But we're starting to see that we're on the precipice of that changing dramatically. Oh, for sure. So look, I mean, the cloud brought as a service. And if there's one thing that really changed the day that public cloud launched, it was the fact that I could literally swipe my credit card and go. Whether yeah. it was software as a service, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, that was the biggest appeal and remains the biggest appeal of the cloud consumption model. Let's face it, traditional organizations are struggling to get beyond a lease or even a creative lease and actually deliver what they sell to their customers as a true utility. So what does this really mean? Let's be a little bold. I think if we just break down IT, I think there's a ton of opportunity here. If you think about organizations that even run their own data centers, Let's break that down. The actual raised floor, the delivery of pipe power and ping to a building, to a facility, the pouring of concrete, the dual power supplies, that's a business. I think you'll see consolidation there. I think there will be more and more organizations that just buy up more and more of these data centers and just sell them back. Pipe power, ping, but they do it at massive volume. Yeah. Kind of like retail does for grocery today. And then if you think the next level in, you've got bare metal as a service. So they don't even operate their own data centers. They buy from data center operators as a service, but they deliver out the storage, the network, the server, the compute capacity as a service. And they do it at such volume that once again, they're able to kind of get those cost efficiencies at scale and sell them back as infrastructure. And then you're going to see the software as a service, the platform as a service partners buying from those bare metal as a service who are buying from the data center or facilities as a service. I think the point is that entire, or what was initially kind of a vertical stack that all gets disintermediated and broken out because no one wants to carry the slack of anybody else mm -hmm. and everybody wants maximum efficiency. So you'll see individuals delivering where they can add value and buying everything else out as a service. Uh, obviously a pure, we're seeing that right in, in the growth of our managed services business and the MSPs continuing to evolve to really be best in class and what they can deliver as a service. Um, and so very, very exciting times in that space. Yeah, it's a fascinating shift in that. It's almost like a whole new supply chain being set up uh, amongst all those, those four or five different facets that, that you mentioned, right? That previously just would have been brick and mortar and 
here, here comes the HVAC and, you know, all these different things. Now it's just like data center as a service. Really? It, it, it's, it's fascinating to, to think of for those of us old guys that have been doing this for, for quite a while. Um, and then kind of closely related to that, number eight, the final one is that, you know, today's infrastructure and, and IT will have an evolution, a continuing evolution to, and we've alluded to this, to, to edge core cloud um, type of architectures. And, you know, your prediction that cloud architects are going to be really the, the critical assets here, right, as the ones who get to see the big picture and perhaps the ones that need to understand how the connective tissue all works when you have those aspects together. Yeah, let me let me give folks an analogy to think about here. Look, I was a big fan of Bob Ross growing up. If you remember the painter, with love the, love Bob Ross, absolutely right. So I think about our IT architects as the painters within our IT organization. And if you can imagine, right, Bob Ross back in the day, I mean, painting with eight or twelve colors, um, you know, with the happy tree and the happy sky, and uh, always an uplifting guy to watch. The IT architects have traditionally been painting in those eight colors or sixteen colors, right? And I mean, once you picked a platform. Back in the day, whatever it happened to be, WebSphere or DB2 or, you know, whatever you were developing on, you were sort of in that world and you were in that platform, Oracle in your case, right? And you just kind of built that out. I think now when we look at everything we've discussed today, the world's gone from 16 colors, the palette's gone from 16 colors to 16 million colors. And the good news is we can paint things we never thought possible. We can have the depth, we can have the um, realism that we never had before, but it's a lot harder to paint in 16 million colors, right? And the thought process of what should I use and where should I use it and how should I build it? The amount of nuance to that is at a level that was never seen before. And so I do believe IT architects, uh, specifically those that work within the business, helping the business to understand how to realize their dream and their new application will be more valuable than ever. But to earn the skills, to develop the competency, to be able to do that, to stay current will also be harder than ever. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised uh, to see a real war on talent for those architects that truly know how to pull all that together. You're seeing some of it today, but we're just early, early stage here. And I do think that, uh, you know, the future for IT architects is very, very bright. Yeah, it's a great opportunity. And, and it was definitely hammered home both the perhaps lack of that role or the competitive nature of that role when I was doing some, some CIO summits over the last couple of years and, and hosting panels. And I would go into some of these, you know, medium-sized cities in the U.S. And it, every discussion came back to staffing and came back to, you know, in Phoenix, there's a finite number of, you know, cloud architects. And for us to go execute on this, we've got to, you know, steal or recruit from other places and, and, and or train, right? And there's a cost and, and, and a time component that comes with that. So, you know, great opportunity uh, for those that are out there studying school, you know, think about, <laughs> think about IT architect and cloud architecture, and there's probably a really bright, bright future out there. Um, and speaking of bright futures, let's close with why you're optimistic of all the things that we've talked about here. And thank you for, for going through. It was a really fun discussion for, for us to have. Um, why you're optimistic for Pure and how we're, we're positioned well in this space. Well, if I think about what Pure's done, right? Pure has built its reputation as a disruptor. We're 11 years old. We disrupted traditional storage. We disrupted how data services were architected. 
we disrupted the mar of complexity and unnecessary overhead that just had been become the status quo for storage for decades. As we see that moving to a service, we see tremendous transportability between the software layer that simplified traditional storage. We see being able to bring that to really, um, I would say, uh, it'll bring the hybrid cloud reality to life using a lot of what Pure did to simplify storage in the data center to actually deliver or simplify the delivery of data services across multiple clouds. Traditional applications on database, cloud native applications, right? Leveraging the technology we acquired from Portworks. I mean, simplification is such a valuable, valuable um, commodity in today's world. Being able to actually simplify an enterprise's ability to deliver against what they need and we built our reputation on it. And even, you know, the thought leadership we brought to the table with Pure as a Service, being able to really get beyond a glorified lease and mm -hmm. actually build a true utility model. Uh, you know, the growth of that business speaks for itself, but we expect on the back of our simplicity and the back of what we've done with as a service and just our general culture of disrupting the status quo, I think puts us in a great position to, uh, to really lead moving forward. An exciting time. Thanks for uh, putting a bookend on that one. Awesome. Well, we made it. We did. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Show three, so now I get my jacket. Now you get your jacket. I'll make sure to, uh, to give you a nice, nice fancy design and with a big number three somewhere on the, on the back or the front. <laughs> hey, now maybe, uh, maybe have you back in a couple months here. All right. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you know what, Rob, I mean, I, I do come up with these ideas. I've been uh, quoting a little bit of Willy Wonka lately on my LinkedIn uh, profile or on Twitter at, uh, at Sean Rosemary. Uh, love to engage in any discussions or follow up with any of our loyal listeners. And uh, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't resist once you went the Willy Wonka direction on the LI, I had to pull out, you know, kind of a, a more obscure quote, uh, which is actually a quote of a quote, but that, uh, you know, that, that, that Gene Wilder says in the Schnozberry scene. So I, I think you appreciated that. Oh, you got, you got to share the quote, Rob. Oh, we are the music. We are the music makers. We are the dreamers of dreams. Yes, it's a fantastic one. Absolutely. Which is, which is right after the schnozberries taste like schnozberries. Schnozberries. Who ever heard of a schnozberry? It's it's just great stuff. And again, like most references I have, they're neither fresh nor within the last two decades. So enjoy oh. that, everybody. Uh, Sean, great to have you on as usual. Uh, come again soon. And thanks everybody out there for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Keep telling friends, keep telling colleagues, and we will keep the great guests like Mr. Sean Rosemarin on the program. And with that, we'll wrap for Pure Storage and Sean Rosemarin. This is Rob Ludeman saying, don't look back. Something might be gaining on you. <laughs>